welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the podcast where I talk with creatives and entrepreneurs about food, life, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. I believe that passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Summer is here, so let's talk ice cream. How about flavors like rose with cinnamon roasted almonds, masala chai, and mango and cream? Yeah! Malai Ice Cream is a small batch artisanal ice cream company in New York City. The founder, Pooja, had a lifelong love of recipe development and spices. And after realizing that the Indian flavors that she grew up with were not represented in the mainstream market, she launched Malai Ice Cream to bring her unique flavors to Brooklyn. Get excited because she ships nationwide through Gold Belly. And because it's National Ice Cream Month, we want to give you a special discount to give these delicious ice creams a try. So go to Goldbelly's website, that's G-O-L-D-B-E-L-Y.com, and search for Malai, M-A-L-A-I. Use promo code KEEPITQUIRKY to get 10% off your next order for the next week. That code is valid through July 16th. I'm telling you, her ice cream is so delicious, and by ordering some using the promo code KEEPITQUIRKY, you will be supporting this podcast, which is so, so appreciated. not be more excited to share today's episode with you. It is with the best-selling author, Yasmin Khan. Her first cookbook, The Saffron Tales, was about her culinary adventures in Iran, and I have a feeling that she's about to become a two-times best-selling author with her second cookbook, Zaytun, which comes out July 12th. In fact, if you're listening to this podcast on the day that it's published, that is tomorrow. Zaytun, which means olive, is a collection of recipes and stories gathered from Yasmin's travels through Iran, the West Bank, and Gaza. The book includes her personal stories traveling around the region, which is not only interesting and the descriptions of the food made me drool, but honestly, it taught me a few things about the conflict in that region. Yasmin also does a lot of broadcasting for BBC and food writing for a variety of outlets online, like Roads and Kingdoms, Food 52, Sever, and Afar. The first part of this episode, we talk a lot about some of the stories in her book, uh, what moves her to write about the Middle East and where else her her travels have taken her. The second part of the episode is basically your own personal motivator slash like life coach session. We talk about some real takeaways that you can start incorporating into your life today. I loved having this conversation with Yasmin. I really, really hope that you enjoy it too. I mean, if you are an aspiring food writer, you want to listen to this episode. In fact, if you're an aspiring anyone, you want to listen to this episode. We talk about the core belief that anything is possible taking responsibility for the life we have, the good and the bad, the light and the dark, how food is the easiest way to access the fact that humans have more to unite us than to divide us. And Yasmin talks about what it really is to be authentic. This is one of my favorite conversations thus far on the podcast. I really, really hope you like it. And now here's Yasmin. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. And thank you for having me to your beautiful flat. Thank you. It's like my little sanctuary in the middle of all the London craziness. It is. It's very calming. You've got a lot of plants, flowers. Can I please get you to read an excerpt from your new book called Zaytun in brackets, that bit right there. Take it away. Standing in line at immigration, I twiddled my silver Hamza necklace nervously. 
wondering if I should have taken it off. I'd been to Israel several times before, so I knew the drill. Going back and forth between small interrogation rooms to be quizzed about every aspect of my past, present and future. Israeli officials can force you to hand over email and social media login details, as well as mobile phone passwords. And if for whatever reason they don't like the look of you, you're simply escorted onto the plane back to where you came from. As I sat waiting for that first interrogation, my stomach rumbled again. I should have packed a sandwich, I thought. Rookie error. Over the next few hours, I was escorted to and from interrogations in which Israeli officials asked me a series of increasingly probing questions about my work, my family, my childhood, my health, my relationships and my political affiliations. It's a sophisticated system of questions designed to confuse and disorient, jumping from one subject to another and throwing so many repeating queries at you that your head starts throbbing. Look, I said, exasperated and tired, I'm just here researching a cookbook. My interrogator, who had not introduced himself in all the time that we'd spent together, fixed his smile on me, unwavering. Do you know anyone in Hamas? He replied. Thank you for reading that. Thank you. I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I wanted you to read that passage in particular, and this is a cookbook, is because it kind of gets at what I have so been enjoying in this book, which is your personal journey going through these places. It also highlights the the tension in this area in a really clear way and tying it to your actual experience. And then, you know, food is what brings everything together in this area. And it makes me feel able to connect with the people that you talk about here. So thank you for reading it. I feel like that was just how I wanted to introduce you and the book to all of our listeners. This is your second cookbook. And how has the second cookbook been for you? Yeah, it's been an incredible journey, like physically a a literal journey and then a quite intense personal one. I mean, I'm a a foodie and I develop recipes and I I write cookbooks, but what I try and do with my work is also take my readers on a journey into a place which perhaps they're unfamiliar with, which is more associated with conflict. And my first book was about Iran. This one's about um, Palestine. The title of your first book was Saffron Tales. The Saffron Tales. And this, the new one's um, zaytun, which means olive in Arabic, which is just like the key crop and ingredient uh, in in the Palestinian territories. So yeah, it's been, it was super emotional. You know, it's as, as a woman kind of traveling out in these areas on my own with no, you know, without not like a huge crew or a budget behind me, you know, these journeys have their own sense of adventure. And then back in the kitchen, kind of translating the, the recipes and the stories I met into something that will be digestible to people here. That was also part of it. And it was hard because actually Whilst I'm all about trying to use food as a way of connecting people and celebrating our common humanity, when you come back from a place that's super intense, you're left with this feeling of, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I um, pay tribute to the actual like gravity of a situation? But like, no one wants to get bummed out reading a cookbook that's just like, <laughs> oh, here's another human rights abuse. Mm. So how do you cut through that and just say, actually, let's just share stories and recipes that bring us together? So oh, it's quite a journey, and obviously. Obviously now the book's about to come out and I think uh, I can't believe how 
yeah, how well it's being received so far. Um, what is that? What has the reception been? Um, really key figures in my like field, like Ruth Reichel wrote to me last week, wow. like who is one of my all-time favorite food writers and She's women. Like one of the godmothers. Right? Yeah. Saying that she loved it and wow. was like going to give me a blurb and like, you know, obviously, you know, Anthony Bourdain kind of really kind of got behind it and sent a beautiful quote. And I just feel like these are my, these are my heroes, the people I've been looking up to for so many years. So to get like them be like, yeah, you did, you did good. I mean, I kind of have to pinch myself. That's huge. But also, I mean, your first book, The Saffron Tales, was also outstandingly received and the blurbs you had on that from Nigella Lawson and I mean just yeah name the list and it's like really incredible figures so how is it different the second time around because this is incredible this reception that you're describing is outstanding and congratulations it's huge to get that kind of feedback before it's even officially before it's even out like that's the thing that's epic that is epic without taking away that excitement Your first book was also outstandingly received and critically acclaimed. So what's the difference? How does that feel different? This book feels like more me, and which is interesting, right? So I'm half Iranian. My mom's Iranian. So you'd think, well, we wrote a book about Iran. Like, surely that will feel more you. But certainly as, as a writer, this one, well, like you said, like I just made it about my journey because I thought, well, how are people going to relate to this? Well, it has to be like me, you know, just a woman from London going on on this on this adventure and taking you with me and the good bits and the bad bits and you know the bit we read out was like a pretty bad bit you know like it was pretty traumatic but you know that was just one day and another day was like incredible you'd be sitting outside like under a full moon in Ramallah like eating an incredible roasted aubergine and chickpea and tomato roasted kind of like it's like a like a casserole with like a bunch of yogis that are running like yoga classes for Palestinian women in refugee camps and it's just like the totally opposite experience you know and there were chickens running around and it was all very hippie and I loved it you know that but sounds it was so, so amazing it was um so different I'm so glad that the way you wrote this was from your experience because as you just said that's how I felt like I was able to put myself in your shoes I feel like probably anyone could Anyone from the Western world or who doesn't understand what's going on in this region could put themselves in your shoes. And another thing I related on is because I am a journalist and very curious about things that I would want to ask all of these questions. And I'm picturing you with your notebook, writing, writing down everything that people are saying and that you're eating. And I thought it was really interesting when you talked about some of the responses you got to that. Some people were more okay with it and willing to talk to you about their experience and understandably other people were a little more prickly about it. So I want to read a really quick excerpt. One frustrated woman angrily told me, we are not clowns in a circus for you to come and watch and make research notes about and then make your name from writing down our suffering. And you say, it was a comment that touched me deeply. I mean, that was like a sucker punch to the soul. That is like, you know, when you're someone like me who has a background of campaigning for human rights since I was like, I've been an activist since like for 20 years, since I was a teenager. And I'm motivated to do this work because I want to share people's stories and to give them a voice. But um, getting that reaction, and I have to say like, most people I met were so happy. And the same thing in the Iran book, actually. They were like, yay, you want to talk to us about something that isn't like war and terrorism? Great. Let me talk to you about my, my incredible hummus. But I thought it was really important to put in that comment because it totally sucker punched me. And I went back and I was like, oh my God, she's right. 
And she wasn't right, actually, but she was expressing a very valid point. And I think that, you know, people in that region are so over-researched. It's been like 70 years, the 70th anniversary of like the, you know, State of Israel being created this year. Journalists, NGO people, film crews have been going there asking people how they feel for a really long time and nothing really changes. And um, why I wanted to put that in was just... I mean, I just think authentic writing is about putting everything in and being honest about our responsibilities as journalists also and the impact we have and how we're seen. And I have to say, like, hats off to my publishers, man, because, you know, this is this this was commissioned as a cookbook. And for them, you know, when I was struggling with it, they were like, well, just write about what happened. And if you just write about what happened, then... It will be good. So when you first envisioned this project, did you not see it having as much of your personal journey in it? Did you originally see it being primarily recipes? No, I mean, it was it was it was pitched as, you know, recipes and stories in the same way that Saffron was. But I think in Saffron, I made it a lot more about the people I met. And I think in here, there's just more emotion in it, the, the opening section. And then, you know, people have told me that well, it's just had like this incredible response where people have been like, I made the recipes and they're incredible. And then I read that chapter and I cried. And it's just like that, that they're very opposite responses, you know, joy and, and sadness. Right. And that's what I guess for me now, looking back now that the book's finished, that's what my journey there taught me in that life is about everything, you know, like it's about the good and the bad and the light and the dark and we have all of those things happening to us all the time whether we're in the West Bank or if we're like a megastar like you know Bourdain and I only bring him up because he passed away so recently someone who was obviously in a lot of pain in the midst of having you know a lot of incredible things happening around him and I think the more we can acknowledge that both of those tensions exist and the more honest we can be about them, I just think it's a really good way to get real about life. It's so true. It is so true. Every day has its bright and dark points. And maybe it is a little bit more exaggerated in these places that yeah. you visited. I mean, talking about how the water would be cut out. Yeah. I mean, like I mean in the midst of cooking, it's like, well, yeah. we're going to have to pause now. And oh, you know, and these women telling you, oh, we're used to it. Yeah. What? Totally normalized. <laughs> what? Absolutely. Or even I, like, I visited this really cool microbrewery um, just outside of Bethlehem that are they're making like properly good artisan Palestinian beers, like really great. And then just talking to them about, you know, shipments and how they're getting there. And I think just the casual nature of how the occupation stops people being able to, he's just like, well, sometimes we get our products out, but if they're stuck at a checkpoint for three hours in the hot sun, they all get ruined because it's, you know, artisan organic products and, you know, just the challenges in a way you can't really talk about, I think, food in that region. Um, well, I guess you can, but I didn't want to talk about food in the region and just gloss over the fact that, you know, People's ability to access food is isn't always there. Well, you'd be missing a huge. I think it's I think it's so great that you did because also I learned a lot from reading your book that I just was pretty ignorant on some things that I you shed light on and you kind of briefly talked about it, but I I just thought it was really really awesome how you described the thread through all of your work. You know your history as as you mentioned a human rights campaigner. What for like a decade you were doing that right? The thread through that work and what you're doing now is the fundamental belief that humans have more to unite us than to divide us, which is beautiful and 
True. And, you know, food and sharing meals is just one of the, the easiest way to access that. When you share food with someone from an unfamiliar culture, you, you start noticing similarities in, in it and then you start noticing differences in it. And all that does is that it builds a sense of empathy, you know, and it's that empathy that builds connection. And um, I know from my work as a human rights campaigner that actually when we start losing our empathy for other people, that's when we start doing bad shit to mm-hmm. them. Because they're already dehumanized. Mm-hmm. You know, food is also, it's a bit like music or like theater or good literature. Like it connects you to your heart. Like yeah. we have physical bodily experiences of delight yes. with food <laughs> and anything that like connects you to your heart. Again, it just drops into empathy. I'm so into this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I love this. So do you ever feel conflict in your kind of past life? as a human rights activist campaigner and what you're doing now, do you ever want to do more though? Is that activist side of you ever like tickling? Yeah. And I think that's a really good question. You know, especially at, you know, the last, I think 18 months have been a time of super heightened, like political interest, right? Certainly in the States, increasingly so in the UK. And this thing of like, what do we do in light of that? I think it's a really good question. And for me, having worked on like the real traditional ways of doing that, like organizing protests, lobbying parliamentarians, you know, like challenging things in the courts through legal challenges. Like I did that. I did it hard. I did it well. And what I love about what I'm doing now is that when you use art, whatever that art form is, and I find, I think that cooking is an art. I think writing cookbooks is an art. When you use that as a form of trying to raise awareness about a subject, I think that you can have a huge effect on changing hearts and minds in a totally different way. And you're speaking to a new audience and you're bringing people in and you're making people feel good. Like for me, I spent three years working on Israel and Palestine in like an NGO capacity. It was awful. Mm. Like there's no joy in that, right? And also I found having, you know, spent so many years working on it on a professional level, um, that it's a subject that like everyone gets a bit tense thinking about it. It, like it's a bit complicated yeah people get like get, like put up walls it's like right? a funny like it's like yeah and and i just was like actually we just need to like relax about it uh. it's not that complicated it's it's something we can all understand and that was my real so you know it meant a lot to me that yeah that that's what you said and certainly that's uh, that's a bit of feedback i've got certainly from um readers in the states who've also gone actually i was always a bit like i don't really understand and this book was like Oh, in a gentle way that isn't, I didn't want to use any dogmatic language, any kind of, um, just, just to share what I saw. Yeah. And I want to latch onto what you said in a gentle way, yes. because also in a gentle way, I felt encouraged to try some of these recipes. There's something about the way you write a recipe that's kind of like casual and like, you should try this. Like, this is really great. I don't know. I don't know what it is. How did you learn to write a recipe? You know, I'm I'm a home cook, so I don't have um, professional training. And I think that as a home cook, you know, food has always been a huge passion of my of mine. My, my grandparents were farmers, so as a kid, I had like a playground of like fresh produce to play, you know, run around in on our farm. Like they grew rice then. Um, now they grew they grow kind of kiwis and eggplants and peppers, and you know, it's surrounded by fruit trees like apples and pomegranates and figs and like food was such a central part of my childhood. But in terms of then translating that, 
I mean, a couple of things, really. I mean, I'm a, this is where it kind of gets a bit more kind of practical, but I'm a big believer that anyone can learn a new craft at any stage of their life. So, I mean, I'd always been a, a good cook, I think. And, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons I decided to go into this because people kept saying, you know, you, you're a good cook, your recipes work. But um, then I did think, okay, well, let's get real. Like, a lot of people think they can cook like how do you make that transition so I just studied and I learnt and I looked at the people that I admired and the people that I was like I admire them but I don't want to cook their recipes why is that there are some great resources out there for people who want to be food writers and people often you know will contact me now because you know I've made a career change so they're like so I want to write a cookbook about this like how do I do it uh, so I'm just going to name drop now so I really highly recommend if you're interested in moving into the food world there is a great book called Will Write for Food by Diane Jacobs and it's just like a practical manual for anyone who wants to write cookbooks or go into blogging or like just all the different ways you can write about it so I just did that and then I practiced and... Did you ever consider worked. going to cookery school or culinary school? I did. I did consider it. And then I thought, well, it's quite an investment. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like, I, ha- I just love the way life works sometimes. You know, like I was burnt out from one career and like eat, pray, loving it up on a beach in Thailand and <laughs> had this idea for like, oh, I should write about my heritage. Then did a Kickstarter and then the Kickstarter happened. And I was like, well, I probably need material. And, you know, it all kind of snowballed. Um, and I'd already got my first book deal. And then once I got my first book deal, I was like, well, is there any point going to culinary school now? Because, yeah. So so is that how the transition happened? Yeah. You were on a beach yeah. and the idea just popped in your head and then uh, you and then you pursued it, which is the important part. But that's how it that's how yeah, it originated. So I was super burnt out and I was on a and I was going to Thailand to like I took six months off to like go and sit on a beach and do a lot of yoga. And I was on the plane and my friend Mel um we were just talking about what I was going to do and she was just like, oh, you know, maybe you should write a book. And I don't know, that kind of started it. And then I think, yeah, just, you know, creative ideas sometimes come when you just like are in the shower or like just on a beach. And it's just about giving, it's like that giving your brain the space. Does that make sense? And then, Absolutely. And then, and then, but then, you know, that it goes quite a long way from going, okay, I mean, so many people are like, I've got an idea. The trans, the how you then go into a product, then I was like, well, I've got no background in food. Like, if I want to do this properly, I need sample material. And then, yeah, Kickstarter, because the UK is always a few years behind the US. It hadn't even started in the UK then, but like it was going to start in the next month. So one of my friends from the US was like, you should do a Kickstarter. And it all kind of went from there. How many years ago was that now? Five years ago. Five years ago. And now my second book's coming out. Wow. What would you say is the main thing that made a difference in you being able to make your transition and start this journey that you're on? I just believed that I could do it. So, you know, I can't emphasize this enough for anyone who is interested in any way getting involved in like a freelance career or building a creative project of their own. Instead of thinking of all the things that could go wrong, just think about all the things that could go right. Like I really passionately believe that we're all capable of incredible success in whatever field we desire and success is going to look different for every single person. But it's just about having that core belief that anything is possible, that you can do it, that you can learn the skills if you don't have them, that the world is abundant. Like there's so much money out there, you know, there's so much money out there. You can find a way of getting some of that, you know, and really focusing that. I think like so much 
success is just based on your mental attitude and believing something is possible. So it's just a, a shift of frame of mind. It is. You shift your state in order to shift the outcome you want. Um, so, you know, this is like a whole other conversation that we might want to na- not have now, but every morning when I get up and I and I do my, my morning practice, part of that is, okay, what do I want today to look like? Wow. So like taking control of the day that you want to have instead of letting life happen to you. And really, you know, this stuff doesn't take a long time, like five minutes just to sit down and do that in the morning. What am I grateful for? What do I want to get out of today? Okay, great. Let's just go and do it. The other key thing I do is I visualize things happening like they've before I've done them. So I'm just like, okay, so I want to write a third book. Okay, I'm just going to like imagine myself having already done that. Well, all these techniques, what they do is that they get you in um, a state of, of, of self-belief. And I generally think that people are attracted to that, like like attracts like, you know. Um, if you go into a situation thinking, oh, I don't really deserve this or maybe this won't happen. I mean, quite often it doesn't. These are such great tips. There are certain podcasts that I've listened to in the past where I am compelled to go get my notebook and scribble some things down. I feel so inspired by them. And I hope that that's what people are doing right now, because that there is so much to what you're saying. Quick question, follow up on when you envision how you want the day to go. What happens when that unexpected thing comes in rattles up the plan you had what 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 kind of how how do you deal with that after you've envisioned a certain kind of day the main thing i've learned in my life um because all of our lives have ups and downs is that quite often even when really bad things happen something comes out of that that you can't see at the time that means it was like, okay, or that you learn from it, from it. So when my burnout happened and I got diagnosed with chronic fatigue and I had to leave the job that I loved, I thought that was the worst thing that could ever happen to me. I was an activist and a campaigner my whole life. Five years on, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have written a best-selling book. Mm. I wouldn't be working with my peers. I wouldn't be following my creative dreams. And sometimes, you know, not everything goes your way. It's not like you sit and visualize like how life's going to be and it works out that way. I mean, relationships break up, people die, you know, you don't get that contract. But it's more about making sure every day that you are putting yourself in the best possible state to get the things that you like. Because really, I'm a big believer that, um, you know, we should all be kind of taking as much responsibility as possible for the life that we have. You know, we have a choice every day to deal with a sucky decision by being like, ah, well, everything works out for the best or taking a sucky decision and being like, oh, nothing ever happens for me. Mm. Like, Maybe that wasn't the right opportunity. Maybe a better one's going to come along. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you really want something and it doesn't work out and you have to go, okay, the lessons for me there is like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be so attached to this one particular way of success. Right. So getting out of victim mode. Totally. Totally. You know, I think sometimes we make life a lot harder for ourselves than we need to. Um, I wrote a best-selling book with no experience in food, never having worked in a restaurant. The recipes really work people like it. If I can do it, anyone can do it. So looking ahead to the next five years, I mean, so much has happened in the past five years for you. What do you see coming in the next five years or what do you hope coming? I mean, books three and four, or I mean, do you see a change or 
What are you what are you thinking? Well, that's such a good question because it is that time, isn't it? Well, I'm in the process of the third book being passed along publishers and looking at a deal. That is exciting. And, and that continues, obviously I can't talk about it, but that continues my thread of, of sharing stories from places and people and I'm super excited about it. So I definitely see um, writing and cookbooks um, in the future. Um, I'm increasingly loving broadcast. Like last night I was in Birmingham recording um, for the BBC Food Programme, this incredible show that we're going to do about Birmingham where my mum and dad live and kind of British-Pakistani immigration there and this dish called the Balti that originated there and about food and migration. And so, and you know, in the States it's been great because I've been doing a lot more video work there. So last year I had like, yeah, I got to work with um, Bourdain and his team and the Roads and Kingdoms crew. Roads and Kingdoms is such good content. Yeah. And I love that Bourdain supported them so much and like lifted them up. What Can you talk about more about that project? Yeah, it was so great. So Roads and Kingdoms, if nobody knows them, you should go and look them up right now. And inhale all of their incredible exactly. content. Their work is like the intersection of food, travel and politics. And yeah, um, it was just such a delight meeting them. So they're based out of kind of New York, but with kind of different staff members around the world. Isn't like Barcelona? Um, yeah, yeah, one of the founders, Matt's in Barcelona. That's and, right. You know, there's no one doing the work that they do. It's like thoughtful, long form, written pieces that use food as a way of really sharing people's stories. And we connected, I think, just through having that shared, I don't know, shared goal or shared vision. And then when the travel ban came in, um, Trump's Muslim ban last year, we worked on a series of banned countries dinners where kind of running a, a charity dinner. So uh, from the banned countries and raising money for charity and just kind of also raising awareness of the issue. And then um, I, they invited me to make some videos with them uh, for their uh, kind of they kind of partner up with Explore Parts Unknown, which is obviously linked to Bourdain's show. Yeah, it was so great um, working with an all-female crew. Yeah, I went. It was just, which is so rare yes, in the broadcast is. world. Yep. So it was like a female sound person, a female director, a female like you know producer. Yeah, production tends to oh. be very male-heavy, so yeah. that is that's outstanding. It was outstanding, and um, and yes, I was luckily dispatched to Tokyo what? and Okinawa. Oh. Oh my gosh. Um, and you can watch those videos online over on Explore Parts Unknown. I'm really interested in just continuing to do what I can to kind of connect people through food and travel. And so all over the world geographically then, if you, I mean, you obviously, you, you your face lit up with joy when you talked about Japan. You must have had an incredible trip. Uh, and I want to hear more about it either on the pod or off the pod. But I tend to associate you obviously because of your books with like a certain region. Yeah. Clearly that is not the only region that moves you. No, not at all. I think um, my work has focused a lot on on the Middle East. But, you know, my uh, I'm interested in people and I'm interested in stories and they're everywhere. Um, and I guess <laughs> conflict and kebabs has kind of been like my thing so far. <laughs> um, but 
you know, I'm definitely interested, you know, um, actually, I'm not doing my third book on this subject, but, you know, I was like super interested in Cuba. Like I spent a lot of my 20s traveling around kind of Latin America, like really? Brazil. I lived in Brazil in like the Atlantic rainforest for a bit. Oh, cool. Venezuela. And yeah, I've uh, I've always been, you know, I must have had some gypsy blood in a past life or something because, you know, my passport's never been too far away yeah. from my back pocket. Yeah, a little, I sense the peripatetic vibes about you. Yeah. I spend a lot of time in Thailand. I go there every year pretty much. Have done for the last seven years. And just that whole region like I absolutely love like Laos and Malaysia and Bali. And so I've, yeah, the hippie things come up a few times in this conversation. But like, <laughs> I, you know, I always have a yoga mat and travel a lot with that. So that's kind of spurned me a lot on to different places. I do want to bring it back yeah. into the conversation about careers and being fulfilled in your career, how much do you think these things that you do outside of quote unquote work that make you feel alive, that make you feel more human, like yoga, which you're saying you're really into, how important is that for your professional success? I mean, for me, yeah, my yoga practice keeps me sane and my meditation practice keeps me sane. I mean, it's the first thing I do every morning. Um, As one of my teachers once told me, you know, we don't think twice about brushing our teeth. Like we look after our teeth, so we brush them for two minutes in the morning and two minutes in the evening while just like sit and meditate like it's taking care of your brain Mm -hmm. and I think that in my professional career with all the travel that I do with you know um, the multiple activities I do from writing to broadcast to teaching to running workshops having something that grounds you and that helps you just always be in a space where you can check in with yourself and be like okay wait is this right should I be doing this are we good okay let's go Mm-hmm. So I, I I think it's really essential and yeah and it just yeah keeps you in your body and not in your head which is always a good thing. Yes, it is. You have talked before about how you think that authenticity is BS. So tell me more about that because it's such a hot word and for you to be like nah get that out of my face <laughs> like talk to me about that. Yeah, in the food world, um, yeah, what authenticity is or isn't. So yeah, I don't think there's any such thing as an authentic recipe, an authentic dish. Food is like a language. It always changes. It's constantly evolving. Um, depending on where you are, it, you know, it will, it will sound different or taste different. And, you know, someone else could have done exactly the same journey as me going through Iran or Palestine or Tokyo, and they would have a completely different experience, but it would be just as authentic. You know, for me, I think, Instead of looking at the authenticity debate as being like, oh, these tamales weren't cooked like how a Mexican grandmother cooks them. It's about saying, actually, the real issue here is that we don't have, you know, people of color or people from minorities aren't often given the same platform to share recipes from their culture. And so are kind of so, I think, often frustrated, quite rightly, by that, it becomes like, okay, you can't talk about that because that's not authentic. And I, I, I think... I think it's a bit of a nuanced debate, but I think the focus has just gone to the wrong place. We're not addressing the actual issue. Yasmin, how do you keep it quirky in your life? Oh my God, I'm so quirky. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, we we talked about roads and kingdoms earlier. And I think when uh, I've worked with them, the way we keep it quirky is that we do a hell of a lot of karaoke. Really? So when I think, um, you know, of some of the best times I've had with that crew, it's been like 
when, whether we were in Japan or in New York, um, just singing my heart out. So just I really silly. love that. Yeah. Love a bit of karaoke. Um, and I love dancing quite a lot before you came I was like cleaning the house a bit and just having a bit of a boogie while I was doing yes. it that was good it's good to shake things out yes Yasmin thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you it's been so great talking to you thank you so much for listening uh, if you want to learn more about Yasmin go to yasminconstories.com or follow her on Instagram at yasminconstories thanks so much for listening to this episode if you like what you hear please take a moment to leave a review in the podcast store. It helps a ton. It helps other people discover the podcast. Really appreciate it. I read all of your comments and it touches my heart. And before I let you guys go this week, I want to remind you about the amazing ice cream situation happening with Malai Ice Cream, the small batch artisanal ice cream company in New York City. To cool off this summer, try some of her flavors like rose with cinnamon roasted almonds, masala chai, and mango and cream. You can get 10% off your order at goldbelly.com when you use the promo code Keep It Quirky. Get it while the getting's good, though. It's valid through July 16th. So go to Gold Belly's website, G-O-L-D-B-E-L-Y.com, and search for Malai. That's M-A-L-A-I. I promise you will love this stuff, and thanks again for your support. Feel free to hit me up at QKatie on Instagram and Twitter and at Keep It Quirky Podcast on Instagram. Thank you to Brian Quinn, my very talented musician brother, for the rockin' theme song you hear. And until next time, don't forget to keep it quirky. 